this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we have a surprise because we didn't announce this ahead of time. We've got an interview. We haven't done one of these in a long time. I mean, we've had guests, but right. we do a straight yeah. up interview. It's been a yeah, while. Yeah, it's been a little while. It's been a while. Uh, sorry about that. And I don't know. What was that you were singing? That was um, Stained. It's been a while. Oh my god! I could tell by the hell. I don't know if you if you know this, but there was a recent like Twitter thread that went crazy, and it was basically like if you can say like the first two words of a song that will like trigger, mm. you know, immediately the, yeah. the whole song, like you immediately. And somebody just wrote, "It's been." So, what do you think of when you hear "It's been"? Nothing. It's been. One week since that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that if you were in the yeah. 90s. And then there's it's been a while. And then it's been a hard day's night. Yeah. If you're a little bit older. So depending on how what age you are, you can you th- those two words trigger you. Gotcha. This is completely irrelevant to our interview here. <laughs> Sorry for that tangent. Let's get back think, on track. I don't think Johnny's written any it's been songs yet. No. But so joining us this week, Johnny Polanski. Now. If you are a fan of 90s albums, there's a good chance you may have or may have owned or own Johnny Polanski's My Name is Johnny. It was kind of a big deal when it came out because Johnny was a guy who was like, you know, really young. He had scored a deal with American Recordings. He was produced by Frank Black. He recorded an album that he recorded all by himself, put it out and had a pretty decent single in terms of you know, airplay. Uh, it's a really good single called in my head. It actually got like on a movie soundtrack for, there was a movie that came out called feeling Minnesota with Keanu Reeves that came out. It was on the soundtrack. How have we not reviewed that soundtrack? I don't know. It's so nineties. <laughs> doesn't get more nineties than that. No, it's after the judgment night soundtrack. It might be the most nineties soundtrack uh, True. of the decade. So since then he's put out a ton of, well, not a ton, but a lot of solo material. But he's also made a career as a session musician, as a touring sideman, as a whole bunch of different aspects in the music business. So and he just put out a new record called Fresh Flesh. came out earlier this year. We sat down at our various internet locations. Johnny in New York, me in Ohio, Jay in Austin. And we had a conversation. And that conversation... We connected our modems. They beep, 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 beep. Yep. We waited for each the... other. <laughs> Boom. There it was. And here, and here is point. our interview with Johnny Palant. Now I can only say that the way I feel tonight, I'm alone and everything is frightening. Cause I know when you're in my heart, you're in my Well, thanks for doing this. And uh, after, it took a little while for us to, <laughs> to get connected here. I think we started talking back before the new year. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, 
So, I mean, we'll just start throwing out questions and, uh, you know, I'm, Jay yeah. and I have uh, lots of stuff to ask. So, uh, and we'll try to keep it to about an hour so that okay. uh, our uh, our audience doesn't... Uh, Bore the digital pants off of them. Well, we've done like... Oh God, <laughs> we, went, we went like three hours in, in some previous interviews. And like, I listen back to them now and I'm like... Probably yeah. could have trimmed this down a little bit. Probably didn't. Who's that with? Matthew Sweet. Oh, cool. But I mean, I mean, you know, Matthew Sweet's one of those guys, like, long career, going back into the 80s, did a lot of, like, weird things that we didn't even know about, doing, like, movies and stuff like that. So we were like, yeah. oh, once we got down a little tangent, you know, and then it's a half hour later, and we're like, well, back to the main question we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that can kind of happen. Um. I don't think our fans mind too much when we meander. Right, they're all they're all like us. They have curiosity about all yeah, the stuff. Yeah, that it's we, all good. We, we're gonna get it on. They're just gonna take what we give them. That's exactly. how it goes. They'll exactly. love it. Uh, so a little backstory on us. Jay and I did college radio together in the '90s at a uh, college here in, in Ohio, Bowling Green State University. Yeah, and um, we had a number of artists that I think maybe at a mainstream level we're not championed by like commercial radio, but that our station was like absolutely in love with. Yeah. I I remember getting hi, my name is Johnny uh, when that came out and we had that in our like heavy rotation, probably for like six months. Uh, The in my head uh, single was probably the thing that we drove into the ground at that station yeah. Uh, back in uh, uh, 1996. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't really, I, I know I've read the Wikipedia page, so I know a little bit about what you've been up to. Um, I know you just put out a record, uh, Fresh Flesh, that yeah. just came out. So I'd like to sort of connect the dots between, you know, those two points with regards to, you know, I've checked out all the other stuff. There's some interesting, yeah. div- you know, sort of, you go off on some interesting musical uh, tangents, both in your own recordings and then some of the stuff you've done with other people. So with regards to the new record, um, and, and it looks like for the most part what you've been doing is self-releasing a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. Is that, a, uh, is that a preference in terms of just having total control over what you're recording and uh, not having to deal with, you know this you know the current record label industry is a little bit different than the one that existed in the 90s but still i'm sure there's some sort of control that you'd have to give up with regards to recording so what's your um thought process on recording now and, and releasing records i mean i i wouldn't i think it totally depends on the situation i mean i had you know a, ma- a major label record deal 20 years ago and i didn't have to give up any kind of creative uh you know, it was whatever I wanted to do. You know, I think it really depends on the people you're working with. So the reason I'm putting it out myself is just because nobody else is. You know, I right. tried for ages trying to find labels, and um, I just got tired of it. And it's exhausting. It's expensive, and I just want to make music. You know what I mean? And especially the last, I don't know, five years, especially, but definitely like the last five, ten, even fifteen years. You know, people are really just doing it themselves and especially i mean 
you know, the music industry is still there, but um, it's radically different. The culture is radically different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. The way people listen to music is obviously very different. Um, and uh, I just really love making records and I love um, vinyl. I don't always buy vinyl, you know, as a listener, but I mean, I do a lot, but you know, it's just, uh, I stream a lot. And, but as far as like making my own records, I like to have something in my hand. And, um, cause I, I released one record digitally a couple years ago just to try it. And it's depressing. It just, you know, you put all this work into something you love it. And, you know, even the artwork was, you know, the, this guy that I met through Pussifer, this incredible artist meets Meyer who did, you know, all the Pussifer uh, videos and Roger Waters and Perfect Circle and Tool. Like, he's he's incredible. And then, you know, because it was digital only, just his work just ended up being this this tiny thumbnail, you know, cover right. in iTunes. So that to me is just a bummer. And then it's just, there's, uh, there's something like romantic about having uh, something physical that you can hold and give to somebody or sell to somebody. And um, anyway, I just like doing it so that's what i keep doing and when it became apparent that it wasn't just me it was you know pretty much everybody it's like it's like you know it's just hard to get anybody any label to take interest um excuse me but so you know i've been printing about myself i've got a, a brand new record it hasn't come out yet um i'm working with a label called jet plastic recordings this guy Jarrett has a label in detroit and we met uh, through uh, a fan introduced us on Facebook. And um, I'm putting out a record probably in October. Um, that's pretty much all finished. I mean, it's it's all it's songs that didn't make it uh, on any of my records from the last 20 years. So there's outtakes from Hi, My Name is Johnny. There's stuff from pretty much every record up until the most recent one. Um, it's about, I think it's 18 songs and... Um, it's going to have a really cool package. This this artist named Boss Dog is a great visual artist. He did this kind of this cartoon on on the cover. It just looks super cool. It's really colorful and strange. And um, so I'm working with a label again for the first time in like I don't know, 15, 12, 13, 14 years or something like that. I don't know. But I mean, those things really don't matter. You know what I mean? Like all that really matters is, you know, you just make the music and make it how you want to make it and put it out any way you can. And for me, you know, I'll obviously I'll do it myself. I have to, cause that's what I'm doing, but it's so expensive, man. Like to even just like make like three or 400 copies of an LP, you know, to right. do it right. Yeah. It's like about three or four grand, you know? And if you, if you want anyone to hear it, like you need to hire a publicist. And that's another at least a grand a month. And not, I mean, not to get like too into the minutiae of it because it's boring. Like you don't want to, you know, it's not, it's not to be like complaining about it. It's like I do it. You know, things like, have cycles, and sometimes you're, you know, everything is like really swimming easily, and there's people behind you, and there's money, and you know, uh, the trajectory. And sometimes you're just like doing it one foot in front of the other, and that's just life, you know, with whatever you're doing. But anyway, like, you know, that's why I've been self-releasing because no one else was interested. But I finally found somebody that wants to put out uh, the record. So he's going to um, put out this this new record. It's called Unreleased. That's coming out in October. And we're talking about 
re-releasing Hi, My Name is Johnny on vinyl for the first time for Record Store Day next year. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so that'll probably happen as well. And so, another brand new one, like I'm, I'm already, you know, I'm working on more new tunes. Because um, honestly, like this record that just came out in, I think it was January, Fresh Flesh, like that was, it was finished. The music was finished like, I think two years ago, something like that. It just took, for a variety of reasons, it took a really long time to um, get it completely finished with like mixing and mastering and artwork and then, just, you know, all this bullshit. So like, um, it just took a while. But that came out, put out some videos, you know, whatever, onwards. Yeah, I want to go back to the uh, physical media thing because I think it's interesting that you kind of started uh, releasing your own stuff, right? You were putting out homemade yeah. cassettes and stuff. How did you How did you get into that? What gave you the idea to to go ahead and start recording yourself in the first place, and then you know, at, you know, trying to hand it out? And I mean, yeah. for for a young kid, that I'm always fascinated. What what triggers that and um, what, what inspired you to, to head in that direction? It was just, it was just like one of those things. Like when you're a kid, like you just do things, like you don't think about it. You know what I mean? Like you're just drawn to stuff and you just do it. Like I was just massively in love with records, with bands and music since I was five. And I got a four track cassette recorder when I was like 12. So I've been messing around on that for a while. And then, uh, I don't remember like what, like the idea that sparked it off, but somehow i i don't know i got thinking like you know i can make a cassette like anyone can put a cassette together <laughs> i had a friend of mine who worked at this tape duping place and he would go in after hours and just do them all for free like he'd steal a bunch of blank cassettes and, and dupe it for me on you know after they'd closed <laughs> and then i go i went down to kinko's and you made the artwork by hand you know and just like stuffed the, all the cassettes and just uh i it was, to me it was just something that um I thought it was just a joke, you know, I, I was just like pretending to make a record or whatever. But if you make a record, you make a record, you know what I mean? Like if you, you got a cover and you got songs and you like have it on tape or whatever, it's like, that's a release. Um, and I just did it to make my friends laugh. And I thought it'd be a good way to use it um, to contact people that I wanted to get in contact with, like, you know, all these musicians and people that I really admired. And it wasn't like about networking. In retrospect, it was. But to me, it was just like, I love this person's music. Like, I want to, you know, I was 18. I was like, I have a thousand questions, you know. And that's how I ended up meeting Reeves Gabrels, who's he, he played guitar in Tin Machine, which is a band I love. And I was really obsessed with those guys. Um, I mean, I love Bowie now, but like, bef at that time, like, I didn't even really, I knew his hits, but I didn't really care about David Bowie. Like, I loved Tin Machine. And, and his guitar playing, Reeves Gabrels' guitar playing, was, just blew my mind. So, you know. This was back in the 411 days, and I knew he lived in Boston. I just called 411, got his name, you know, called him up, introduced myself, and I think he was pretty charmed that a teenager was, you know, taking the time to hunt him down because he wasn't, you know, not a household name now, but, like, he's kind of a legendary dude for what he's done. But back then, it was still, like, you know, he hadn't yet uh, started playing with Bowie solo and, like... Uh, so I'd, anyway, I'd, I would send him these tapes and he was really into it and just gave me tons of encouragement and confidence and ended up moving to Boston. We became friends and he would introduce me to all of his friends and kind of got me into this, the community and um, ended up introducing me to Frank Black because he knew I was a huge Pixies fan. And uh, so, you know, those 
those tapes, the reason I made them was because I felt like it. Because I just, you know, I just felt compelled to do it because I thought it was fun. And um, those were all, it wasn't even songs, really. Those were all just like, you know, I don't know if you heard that stuff. But I I ended up releasing a compilation of it called Touched by Genius, which is like there was three tapes early on. And they were really short. They're like eight minutes a piece. Anyway, it's, it's almost more like Ween. It's like really funny, stylistically all over the map. And just like, you know, that's what, uh, that was another thing. Cause like, they were really, they're really funny. So I, I knew that would like get people, like, I didn't know if they were any good, but I knew that they were funny. So I, I knew that it would like get people's attention. I thought that I had read the Tim Machine uh, reference. I thought that was really interesting. That's a band I would have not necessarily thought uh, of you being inspired by. Is that a band that you go back and listen to uh, still? Yeah, it is. I, I love that band. Um, I think they're seen as, you know, those couple of records as, as like Bowie's low point or that whole period or whatever, but I think they're incredible. You know, it's just a different thing than, than his solo stuff. Um, I mean, it's hunting Tony sales, the sales brothers who played on lust for life and they played, you know, on, on the idiot tour with Iggy and, um, they're like one of the greatest rhythm sections of all time, like incredible drumming just beyond. And, uh, it's the the band functioned like a like a '60s you know blues based power trio. They were a, a power trio with a singer, so it was four people, but it's basically guitar, bass, and drums. And I just think the way they played together was just so unique and magical and strange. And it's you know it, it's sort of like had a, the feel of like a Cream, but there was so much more going on. Not better than Cream, but just different. You know, because Reeves is just such a, a shredder and, and has so much musical knowledge. And there's just, uh, I don't know, there's just, um, it's just a, a really strange band that had a great groove. And I really love those songs. And uh, I don't know, I, I always thought it was kind of cool, too, because you could tell that, that Bowie was sort of fighting his way back, you know, from the doldrums. You could sort of, I don't know, I, I just always got that impression, even right. as a teenager, which I, I, I like that. That's one reason I love Grinder Man too. There's something about it, you know. It's it's you know such an incredible rock band, and those guys are all in their 50s and 60s, and you know there's something about people that are not fighting against youth, but like like maintaining some kind of youthful exuberance, you know, as they get older. And people, you know, were so indoctrinated to think that you know you're supposed to stop at a certain point, or like people usually get, you know, have nothing to say after a certain point. And really, like, the reality is that as you get older, you should get wiser and kinder and stronger and more resilient in all these, you know, positive things. And that is going to be reflected in the music. And um, the whole notion of, you know, live fast, die young, you know, don't trust anyone over 30, like all these things, whatever, you know. It's just like it's just bullshit. Like if you got something to say, if you're a real artist, you're going to be able to do something till you die. You know, it shouldn't matter if you got wrinkles or you're losing your hair or whatever <laughs> the fuck, you know? Right. I, I assume but, that you learned about Reeves through liner notes. I I'm guessing that it's because of the physical media back then and looking at who's playing on what records. Yeah. And just that, credits. Yeah. And that's, I think that's something that people miss these days is that, they don't know who's playing the music a lot of the times. They know that there's an artist. 
maybe fronting and singing, but they don't necessarily know without that, you know, gatefold to open up or that CD case to open up or the cassette, whatever. They don't necessarily know what's what's going on with. I know it's a bummer. I feel that way about because honestly, like I I probably 90 percent of the things I listen to, I stream just it's just convenient, you know. Um, And I still feel like a twinge of guilt about it. And not only not only because, you know, the artists aren't getting paid, really, but it's just like I miss having that relationship. Like I was one of those people that I would pour over. I would just stare at the album cover for hours, for years, you know, like it becomes part of you. And I would read every single liner note like I knew who mastered the records and like, you know what I mean? Like I remember I remember record company addresses, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like stuff like that. Like I it's I, I love that stuff. I, I love entering a world. And if you fall in love with an artist or a band or a record, like it's so great. There's nothing better than just staring at it. And the thing is, too, it's like I love streaming. Like I love the convenience and and the fact that you can think of something and just immediately pull it up. Or you can just, you know, I always want to check out such and such. Like you, you can just go check it out. Like you don't have to spend 15 bucks and go, fuck, that was a waste of money. But at the same <laughs> time, like there's something about yeah. that exchange when you do spend your money. And even if you... I remember reading an article with Trent Reznor a year or two ago where he was talking about how growing up, he's older than me, but it's basically the same way I grew up. Um, growing up, like you'd you'd spend money on a record, and if you didn't like it, that was too bad. Like you would, you know, you'd listen to it anyway because right. like you spent, you know, right. you're like 15 or whatever. <laughs> no. It's like you spent eight, 10, yep. 15 bucks or whatever. It's just like you're gonna check it out and like see what you can get out of it, or like, you know, if you. Like I remember lots of records where I would listen to I would love like one or two songs and and the rest I wasn't that into, but I would force myself to listen to it, especially if it was a band I loved if I, if I didn't get it at first. And this actually happens to, for some reason this happens a lot with Queens of the Stone Age for me. It's a band I really love. They're one of my favorite contemporary bands, but every record they put out, it takes a while for it to rub off on me, which mm-hmm. I like. Like I, you know, if I feel like it changes me, like it forces me to adjust my view of things you know i don't have a problem with things being easy to easy to digest or like you immediately like it like that's great too but there's something really cool about an artist that you trust or i guess if you do trust them if you like them like pj harvey same thing it's like you listen to something like oh i wasn't expecting that like like what is this like i'm not really sure if i like this or not you know and and you just kind of adjust your vision to theirs and just um you know, sometimes you just don't like things. Sometimes you you go in and out with a with an artist, but a that lot was of times one it's really of, rewarding. That was one of the good things about cassettes, I guess, is that it was so inconvenient to skip songs. You find yourself just <laughs> powering through, a, you know, a song or two that maybe you didn't love at first, but yeah, to get up and try to fast forward to them through them was too too much of a pain in the ass. So you're like, yeah, I'll yeah. just sit through it. And next thing you know, you're like, hey, this song's actually pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you're someone who, you know, poured over the the liner notes to see all this information. And then, uh, you know, I'm looking through all the work that you've done with so many different musicians. Can you talk to us a little bit about, I know, so you've already talked about moving to Boston. I know you're originally from the Chicago area. Yeah. Uh, at, At some point, you moved out to L.A. Was there, like, in that move a an access to be able to start collaborating and and start working with other musicians 
um, both in the studio and then live? And or like, how did that all take shape for you? I moved to LA in 2002. Um, I love Chicago. Like, it's where I'm from. It's where I grew up. I grew up in the suburbs, but I lived in the city for a long time. And you know, I the wherever I go, wherever I live, I feel like a Chicagoan. Like it's really the city that made me. And you know, I feel really uh, glad that that's where I'm from. But um, it was just time to go. I was just bored, and you know, you play the same clubs and see the same people and one thing that's great about Chicago or at least the Chicago that I knew I don't know how it is now but you know it's like you knew everybody and if you played music or if you were artistic like you'd kind of know pretty much everybody who was on the scene you might not be friends with everybody but it's sort of like high school and the downside is that it's sort of like high school like it gets very clicky and you can get bored it just seems kind of small and LA just seemed I don't know it just seemed uh I just wanted to see what would happen. I had a couple of good friends that moved out there before me and they were doing all right. And I just wanted to give it a go and see what, see what would happen. And I had a feeling that I would uh, end up doing session work. Cause I knew that that happened a lot there. And uh, it's basically what I did in Chicago. It just wasn't, you know, just don't get paid. Like you just sort of play with friends and different bands. Um, but I live in New York now. I just moved uh, in mid March of this year. Same thing. Like I, just, I just kind of got tired of LA, and I always wanted to live in New York. Um, I just moved here just to see what would happen. And um, I don't know. Like LA, uh, there's a lot of things I like about it, but I just never really felt like it like it clicked with me, you know. But uh, you well, never know. Might end up back there someday. Being originally from the Midwest, Jay and I are both. I, well, I didn't grow up in the Midwest, but I live in Ohio now. And yeah. uh, Jay's originally from Ohio and lives in Austin, Texas now. There is definitely a completely different vibe between LA and the Midwest. I mean, it's like oh, night, yeah. it's night and day. Whereas, like, I can go to Chicago, and even though it's a much bigger city than where I live here in Columbus, it still feels very Midwestern. And it has that, you know, any place that gets snow, I think, yeah. has a sort of this built in sort of toughness. And, uh, but there's also like a Midwestern, um, I don't know, modesty, I guess. Whereas you go to like LA and it feels like you're on, it's like Luke Besson built LA. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a little over the top at times. So I could definitely understand that. So what was sort of the entry point you mentioned about, you know, doing session work and, and whatnot. Was there a particular, you know, point at which, someone said, Hey, I want you to come work on this. Or did you, do you have to go to yeah. like an audition or something like that? I mean, I did tons of auditions, you know, this was years ago, but I, you know, I did lots and lots of auditions for people's bands and, um, you know, I did a lot of touring work with different bands, people you'd heard of, people you haven't heard of. And, um, some things just kind of came my way just by being there, but it was really Rick Rubin, um, who, started the ball rolling for me um i guess it was i'd been there maybe a year and i got a job working for audio slave i was i was working as their in-town tech like i never toured with them but um they needed somebody just to set up all their gear while they were rehearsing and record their rehearsals and i was you know i was like guitar tech drum tech bass tech like i did everything there um and that was incredible 
because I was I was enough of the of a, of a fan of their previous bands to like really be excited, but I wasn't like such a diehard fan that I was losing my mind over it. But those it was you know what I mean. Like I was able to really enjoy it and pay attention and and learn from it, but not feel like I was a contest winner or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. But that turned out to be an incredible experience. Like they're such a great great band and great people, and to you know to stand ten feet away watching Chris Cornell sing like six hours a day, every day for a year or two. That was incredible. And, and all of them really, you know, I mean, I became friends with, with Tom and Tim and Brad, Chris and I knew each other a little bit. I would see him around town or whatever, but, um, I played in Tom's band, you know, I played bass in his band and we recorded a little bit, did a few tours. Um, and Tim and Brad and I, the rhythm section, we had a, a band after obviously broke up called big nose so we recorded a ton of songs and wrote a bunch. Um, just one thing just came out on a soundtrack. That was it. And that's how I actually met Maynard Keenan was um, we were looking for a singer for the thing we had. And Maynard came down because they're old friends. Um, and that didn't really go anywhere, but he and I stayed in touch. And he asked me to be part of Pussifer. That was probably around 2006 or seven or something like that. So, I mean, that's the, the beauty of L.A., it's just like any city, really. You know, it's a city full of people doing stuff. It's just like the people that are doing stuff are often really, really great and or famous or whatever the fuck. You know what I mean? So what did you do at Pussifer? Did you play guitar? Uh, I played guitar. Hold on a second. Uh, I played guitar, keyboards, kind of a bunch of different things. Like I think like lap seal or something. I was going to say laptop. I, I might have played one of those, too. <laughs> um, I, I co-wrote a couple tunes and, um, I did Pussifer for like, I think like three or four years and that was great. That was really, really fun. Maynard's such a great singer and just a really nice person. Maybe nice is the wrong word. He's a really good person. <laughs> He's hilarious. He's super smart. He's really inspiring and he's a really kind person, really generous and helpful and, um, just a good guy and he surrounds himself with people that are like that. So it was just really easy and really fun. And, you know, that was, that was an awesome experience. And then, and then you've got a couple Neil Young, or I'm sorry, Neil Diamond credits in your, in your, uh, on your Wikipedia. What, what, what is that? What did you do with Neil Diamond? Wow. I was, I was, I was, well, after, let's see, I was teching for audio slave that was my day job. Um, Rick pulled me aside one day because he was producing their second record. I think he produced their, their first record too. Um, but he was pulling me, pulled me aside and asked if I wanted to come work for him at his place. I was like, yeah. Um, so that that was my, I stopped doing Audio Slave and started working at Rick's studio. And it was just, you know, just ostensibly to learn how to be an engineer, which I knew I didn't want to do because it's just not where my interests lie. But you know, you just say yes and just figure it out. And then one day I was, you know, he was in the control room and I was in the live room doing something. He asked me to come in and um, had me play on some Jay-Z track that was unreleased. Like he asked me like what, what key was a sample in that, that he'd started. And I told him, then he told me to grab a guitar, you know what I mean? So like we ended up working on this. I put a bunch of guitars and, and keyboards and stuff on this, jay-z tune and then uh 
the next week he asked me to come to Neil Diamond's studio and play guitar. And that was it. So wow. yeah, I just walked, he, he's got a studio, Neil Diamond's got a studio in Beverly Hills that I think it's the Doors old studio. It's like they had their own studio or maybe like a demo studio or something like that. In any case, um, I walked in and it was Mike Campbell from Tom Putty and the Heartbreakers. He was the first one there and I introduced myself, said, hey, I'm Johnny. And he asked me my last name. And I told him, it's like, oh, yeah, I got your record. I really like it. And so that like blew my mind because, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, <laughs> yeah. like, forget it, man. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the 80s, you know, and that they were just everywhere. And that's just some of my favorite music of all time. Um, and Benmont was playing as well. And Smokey Hormel was a great uh, guitarist. He played bass on that record. Um, played in Beck's band. He's played with Tom Waits. He's just a great guitar player. Matt Sweeney is a great player. He was playing. So, was, you know, it was like the way people used to make records, like everybody all at the same time. And that was just fantastic. That was super cool. And I love Neil Diamond. Like I've loved him since I was a, a kid, you know. So that was really incredible to be able to play music with him. That was, I wouldn't have seen that one coming, you know. <laughs> What's something that you learned in that experience you, you, you carry, you're carrying forward? I don't know. I mean... It's hard to articulate sometimes. Like you learn things just by being around people, mm -hmm. especially people that are at that level and have that level of experience and presence. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess if anything, it, in a way, it just like teaches you to relax and just be yourself. And like, you know, because it's for me anyway, I was like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm in, you know, like when I first heard him, you know, Neil Diamond's voice in the headphones, it's distracting. It's like listening to Abraham Lincoln or something. It's like, you can't believe he's real. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he's a person, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's a guy from Brooklyn, but it's fucking Neil Diamond's. It's like, this is distracting. So you just kind of learn to go with it and relax. And, you know, it's just people. It's actually, I, I found it much easier playing music with people like Neil Diamond or Mike Campbell and Benmont, like people that are really great. Um, where you think you might have trouble keeping up just because they're just these incredible players and legendary figures or whatever. But really, it, and this is like, uh, it's a compliment. It's not a denigration. It's just like, it's just easy because there's no weirdness. Like they're just, they do what they do. And, you know, everybody listens to each other and pays attention and it's how it should be. It sounds like you know, in a weird way, there's less ego. Like they, they know who they are and what they do. They don't have to prove yeah. anything to anybody. <laughs> Totally. Interesting. Yeah. And and what are the mini driver records? I I didn't even realize she put records out. What what rules yeah, did you play? She was on a those? singer. She was a singer before she was an actress. Um I think she had a deal with a, a band like when she was like late teens or something like that, with Sony or something like that. I, f I forget. But anyway, um we had a mutual friend, this guy Doc Dower in LA, and he and I had become friends. I can't remember how we met maybe through Pete Yorn. Um, and uh, I don't know, we, we were neighbors and we would hang out and he just asked me to start playing on some of her stuff. So uh, <clears throat> I played on a couple of Minnie's records and, you know, I've done a bunch of shows with her. She's great. She's lovely, really excellent singer. So how do you, um, <clears throat> how do you enjoy being a contributor? Is it equally uh, rewarding as 
being, you know, writer in your own solo uh, project or is it different? How, how would you describe sort of it's your feelings weird towards a contributor? Cause I love it. Like I really love playing with other people. It's really great. Um, the thing about it is just like, you know, you step into someone else's world, it's their music, it's their aesthetic. I love just uh, kind of getting the vibe and knowing what to do. It makes it really easy. And I feel like I'm, for whatever reason, I'm good at it. Um, Cause I love all sorts of music. So it's, it's cool. Like just to, you know, like, oh, okay, I get it. I know what to do. You know, you just step into it and, and do it. And it's really, uh, I love playing with other people and there's something really satisfying and fun about, you know, making people happy. It's like, you're, it's it's their music, it's their songs. And to kind of, if you, if you connect the music to like help it light up, like it's a really joyful thing. Um, and, uh, but like doing my thing, it's like, to me, it's more gratifying, you know, it's, it's, but it's harder because it's like, okay, you can do absolutely anything you want. Like, what are you going to do? You know, it's easier just to step into a situation with someone else's record, someone else's music, someone else's band, and just kind of know what is required and then you just do it. It's a lot harder to make the decisions of like, okay, what do I want to do? Like, what mm-hmm. am I, what, what are the parameters, you know? So I like doing both. You know, I, I got burnt out on doing session, session work. I did it for a long time and I did tons of stuff that, you know, no one has ever heard or ever probably will hear and, and just like commercials and stuff like that. And I'm, you know, it's been a while. Like I'm, I'm down to do it again. Like I'll, I'd play with, I don't know, like I'm, I'm available. <laughs> Someone wants to hire <laughs> me. You know what I mean? Um, have you, <clears throat> have you written for other artists? Not really. I've, I've done a little bit of co-writing, but not much, but I, I would totally be down for that. I think that'd be fun. So I have a, a weird sort of practical question because I'm, I'm, practical like that when yeah. when rick rubin says hey i want you to come work for me are you like on a salary like is that like a regular job where you show up nine to five each day or is that it's not like, like that it's not like that no it's i mean it's pretty loose i mean basically you know it's just it was just like an hourly position where the hours change day to day it's definitely not a nine to five kind of guy you're not like getting, um, you don't have a 401k and all that kind of nonsense. no uh-uh. <laughs> No. Does the studio have a time card you have to clock every time you come in and out? <laughs> yeah. No, it's not like that. It's it's very loose, um, very professional. You know, like everybody involved is great at what they do and top notch, and the gear is top notch. And, you know, he surrounds himself with people that are just really great at what they do, and everyone is really nice. He's great. I always love working with him. It's just, it's just easy, you know, like playing for, you know, on his records, it's super easy. Like he just picks the right people and lets them do what they want to do. And every once in a while we'll give some direction, but it's very, uh, it's rare that it's specific direction. You know, most people in my experience, you know, in other situations, people can be really controlling or, uh, very vague and that's, super frustrating you know because if you want something just tell me what it is and i'll do my best to give it to you but if you don't know what it is you can't articulate it then we have a problem you know and and that's no fun but rick he always knows what he wants and when he doesn't like he knows how to plow forward in a way that's uh you know just uh just trying things and and you don't feel like you're spinning your wheels 
he's great. He's really easy to work with. There's just a vibe that it's very serious, but it's very like playful and kind of anything goes, you know, like serious in a good way. Like you're doing, like you're really doing something. In looking through the credits on the various albums that you've played on, there are a wide variety of instruments that are covered. Yeah. Some of which I don't even know what they are. But <laughs> same here. Um, are those things that you're literally like picking up in the studio and saying, and somebody says, I, I think this is what this needs? Or are these things that you already have a familiarity with and you're saying, I can play this, I can do this? Like, cause I don't know a lot of people have a sitar laying around, for example, like I know a lot yeah. of gu- guitar players who play keyboards and they can play yeah, yeah, 12 yeah. string and six string and they can, you know, noodle around on a lot of different instruments, but to actually be able to like play not just stringed instruments, but you're also playing some, there's like flute and recorder and, and xylophone and oud. I don't even know what an oud is. Oh, you're in the Wikipedia page? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I also noticed there's some, there's some, uh. Uh, there's a howitzer listed on there, which I'm pretty sure is not a musical <laughs> instrument. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. You know, it's just a. It's, there was a time when I didn't know how to play guitar. Like you pick it up and you mess with it until you know how to play it. Like any instrument, some are more difficult than others. I have a hard time sure. with wind instruments. I can't really play, you know, trumpet or sax or anything like that. But anything with strings, piano, drums, like you know. Some, some like, you know, not the flute, but like recorders and things you can blow into and stuff like that. Like, uh, you know, harmonica, stuff like that. I don't know. Can, I, can, uh, I can just get a sound out of it. Some easier than others. But I've been playing drums since I was a kid. Like, I love drums. I love drummers. I hesitate to call myself a drummer. I mean, I guess I am because I've, I've played on my records and played gigs with people and gotten paid to do it or whatever. But like, you know, I'm always pretty rusty cause I don't play a lot, but I really, really love drums. And, um, I think about them and I, you know, as much, if not more than like guitar and other instruments. And, you know, I really, I've drum heroes, you know, just the same as guitar heroes. You know, I, I guitar is my the instrument I'm most fluent on. That's the instrument I've been playing. since I was like nine or 10 um, but I love playing keyboards. I love piano. Um, I'm not super versatile, but I just kind of do what I feel like doing. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think one of the things I've noticed over the years is like, I don't know, man. I, I just think maybe I'm just more willing to try things than other people sometimes. People can get so intimidated, like, oh, I, I don't know how to play this. Like, like, so what? Just like pick it up and do something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and uh, figure it out. How did that translate to you uh, making My Name is Johnny? Like, so you did some demos. You got to deal with American. How did you transition from that into doing a big, you know, a major label record and, and making that happen? What roles uh, did you play? How did you write? How did you work all that out? As a player? Like, how did I <clears throat> Yeah, just a player artist. Like, did you put a band together, or did you play a Not lot of it? Not for the record. The record, I played everything myself. I recorded it. Uh, I was yep. living in Boston when I got the record deal. I moved back to Chicago to my mom's house in Wilmette, to the town I grew up in. Um, my brother had moved out. I moved into his room because it was bigger. It was empty, and just bought some cheap recording gear, like some early digital stuff, 
it was before everyone had Pro Tools. So I was using a DA88, which is basically like a high eight video cassette, uh, eight track. Mm-hmm. So I recorded that record on eight track. A lot of those songs, most of the songs, it was the third time I was recording it. Like I'd done a, it was one of those early cassettes that I used to hand out. That was the third cassette. It was, the first one was, uh, I'll blow it out your ass. The second one was, premium white American. And the third cassette was I like porn and I like porn had all the, most of the songs that ended up on Hi, my name is Johnny. And that was around 1993, a lot, lot rougher and like more garagey. And then when, uh, I met Frank black, he flew me out to LA from Chicago to produce my demo. The one that got me signed by Rick Rubin and that demo, I played everything except for the drums. Nick Vincent played the drums. He was Frank black's longtime uh, drummer and uh so then um when it came time to you know do the record they, they wanted to just remix that demo and i loved it like it was really i mean especially back then like i i love the pixies and frank black and you know i'm forever grateful to charles but especially back then it was just like he was just like just my ultimate hero like it just fucking blew my mind that he was taking an interest in what i was doing and you know, would call me at home and we'd talk on the phone. He'd like talk to my mom and you know what I mean? It's like, and here he is like producing my demo. Like this is insane. It's completely insane. And, um, but as much as I revered him and loved the demos, I just want to, in my head, it was just, there was a different feel. Um, and I just, I knew I wanted to do it myself. And part of it, I don't know, maybe it was an ego thing, but like, I think part of it was just like, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. But it was also just aesthetically, I don't know, it's hard to uh, articulate. It, I just wanted to redo it. So I did it and um, bought a bunch of gear, moved into my mom's house. So about three months, I did 17 songs, 10 of them made it on the record. One of those songs is going to uh, be on this new record that's coming out this October. And um, a couple of the tunes, I don't know, I think a few of them were on a, like an English EP that came out back in the day and there's a Nirvana cover. I covered in bloom that came out on a 45 years ago, uh, before the American record. So most of the songs I recorded are, have been released. There's a couple that haven't been, but, uh, so did you, know, you, did you use your American advance to, to buy all the gear and move back to your mom's and record it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did they question that at all? They say, "Hey, uh, no, what the hell are you do- doing?" <laughs> no, Rick was the beauty of Rick Rubin. It's like cool. Wow, you want to so do it? Do it. Has was, the, he, was he involved at all? Then was he? Were you sending him recordings back? Or yeah, giving any feedback? I would send him. You know, I would send him cassettes. Like I would do rough mixes. Uh-huh. Just, you know, be like, "This is great. Keep going." Has the Frank Black version ever been released? Yeah. That came out uh, digitally a few years ago. I, I, there, you know, it's on all the streaming services okay. and iTunes and everything. So that's digital only. But I put out the Frank Black demos. There's one song that didn't make it onto Hi, My Name is Johnny called I'm Incontinent. That's on there. And, uh, just, you know, the, the versions are pretty similar to what came out on, on the American record. But uh, a little different. I don't know. Lyrics I, here and there. I felt in revisiting that and then going forward to the power of sound like it 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 sounded like the record that should have come out maybe like two or three years afterwards like it was the refinement 
of what was on that record and there was like the melodies were just a little bit more mature and and it just sounded like the natural evolution it just happened to come out eight years later instead of you know two or three years later but it's it's like totally made sense that that would be sort of like the sound of where you were going but the one that threw me in in going through the discography was the other side of midnight yeah can you just talk a little bit about that because that is in in your overall sort of discography it's kind of a curveball yeah what where did that come from I love that record. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's I love just all... different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just sick of doing things the way I'd been doing them. I love all sorts of music. I love, you know, Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode and Ultravox and Gary Newman. And I'm a massive David Lynch fan. Like, I love his movies and Twin Peaks, but I also really love his music. Not everybody knows he makes music. He's got a couple solo records out and he's done a bunch of collaborations. I really, really love his music. And uh, there's a singer, well, Julie Cruz, I, those two records that they made just blew my mind. Like even back then, like I was listening to those 20 mm-hmm. years ago. Well, um, I think the thing that threw me was that the first song, singer, the first song was called Chip Away the Stone. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay, this is an Aerosmith cover. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. This is the weirdest yeah. interpolation of, of Aerosmith I've ever heard. <laughs> no. Yeah, th- that wasn't on purpose. I remember... Uh, it's funny how things stay in your head. Like I'd gotten the live Aerosmith bootleg, the one that came out officially like years ago. And I didn't listen to it very much, but that title kind of stayed with me and I didn't mean to steal it. There's also um, Roll Away the Stone by Mott the Hoople. I love that song. I love Mott the Hoople. But that song just kind of came out. Like, you know, I, I was just tired of playing guitar and doing upbeat, crunchy guitar, melodic, catchy tunes, you know. Um... Like, I love that people, uh, there's a lot of people that really like Hi, My Name is Johnny. It's kind of a cult favorite, which is a really cool feeling, but it's also, um, I get bored, you know what I mean? Like, I I like to try all sorts of different stuff, and there's all sorts of things I want to do. So I just do them, and Other Side of Midnight was one of them. You know, it was just real moody. That one was, you know, just a... She's strange kind of soundtrack, a lot of soundtracks. I was listening to like Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now, One of Tricks Point Never, who's a electronic artist mm-hmm. out of Brooklyn. I really fell in love with his records. Gary Newman, David Lynch, like that's kind of all that went into that record. And also like I, I think I'd just gotten divorced maybe like a year or two before that. So, you know, that's just kind of how I was feeling. It was just like real introspective and kind of sad and beautiful and yeah i want to make more music like that i like that record there's more coming like the stuff i've been making lately it's kind of all over the map you know i've had a few different bands over the last couple of years and some stuff i just record all on my own um so then the brand new record that's going to come out next year not this unreleased thing that's coming out later this year because that's all a compilation of stuff that hasn't been released over the 20 years but the brand brand new one i think is i don't know we'll see what it ends up like, but I think it's gonna be pretty eclectic. I just like to try different things and I don't like to, I don't like the feeling of having a style. Like I know that I do in a certain way, but I don't know there's this great Bowie clip that's on, you know, the internet somewhere where he's saying he's uh, something about um, how an artist really needs to be just slightly out of their depth. That's when they do their best work. That's when he's found, he did his best work 
when you're not quite sure of what you're doing. And that's how I felt with the other side of midnight was I was like, I just, I had no idea if this was any good. Like I, I just knew I was just messing around trying things and you know, the, the music that I make that I'm most fond of is the experimental stuff. And even if it's, you know, pop music, like it's experimental and just like, just throwing ideas around and sounds and, you know, not being so rigid or um, it's more of an attitude than just playing, ex, you know, quote, experimental music. You know what I mean? It's just more sure. like, just I just want to like allow myself to be playful and, and creative and just kind of put whatever I feel like in the mix, you know, like that, like that, that record, you know, like there's some tunes that are only like, you know, the, the song songwriting rise, songwriting wise, like I think it's pretty typical of what I do. Like there's a lot of two and three chord songs. Like there's that song, um, Sunset Night. To me, it's like a, a Kurt Cobain tune. Like it sounds like something that could have come off of uh, Nirvana Unplugged. But uh, the way I arranged it, it's kind of dreamy and futuristic sounding. And the guitar solo is pretty much like a Adrian Ballou or Robert Fripp type just sci-fi gonzo solo, which obviously never would have happened in a Nirvana tune. Right. So it's like, you know, I just try to get out of habits and I try to challenge myself and, you know, I want to, I like mixing different things together. Like what would happen if, you know, Robert Fripp sat in with Nirvana, you know what I mean? Like just whatever it takes to kind of jog my imagination and make things fun. So I noticed in the uh, new record, you're really using effects to kind of create parts and write off of, they become kind of an instrument on the record. Is that, how do you write these songs? So if you're going for something that's a little bit more atmospheric, what's your process? And is it different than it used to be? Not really. I mean, all the songs on Fresh Flesh, I, I wrote on acoustic guitar. Um, well, there's a couple that um, I think I want to be healed and the title track I wrote with the drummer we were just jamming and she played a beat and, you know, I ended up writing them right there. But, um, for the most part, I'm a dude that sits around and writes a song on acoustic guitar and then brings it into a band. And as far as the effects and everything, like, you know, I got a pedal board, but like a lot of stuff happened, um, in, in the mixing too. Mm. But that, you know, that's what I wanted. Like I want, we recorded that album in about, two days i mean there's a few few days after that where i was you know over doing some overdubs or doing some vocals but 90 percent of that record was recorded in in two sessions so it was really fast it was really rough it was intentionally so i mean kind of we had to like we didn't have any money so we just got a couple of free days in the studio and it was this band i'd been playing with a couple of years ago these two girls i was playing with some friends of mine and we'd been playing a lot of shows and we're pretty pretty tight so it was it was easy just to do the set and record it i like that aesthetic just like having the performances be pretty raw but having the sonics be kind of beautiful and and seems like it's produced you know yeah. like like uh like i love psychedelic furs i really like some some of the horrors records you know just kind of that mood yeah, it doesn't. It was. Um, I was amazed when I read that it took two days, or you spent two days recording it, because it it doesn't sound that way. In that, I don't. To me, the closest band I could think of would be like it kind of sounds a little bit like Failure at times. Oh, that's cool. Um, I love Failure. But with yeah. your songwriting, 
and their records certainly don't ever feel rushed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and I, I got that same sense from from this record. I, I particularly love the um, like the guitar tones you're using, and uh, it's so wrong for me that yeah, I don't know, yeah, it's yeah. like an octave effect or something going on there. But it just has this really rich, yeah, like clean sound. That's that's really gorgeous. Oh, cool! Thanks. What What are you using? What's that? What's your setup? on that song? It was my Les Paul with a whammy pedal. Um, with the octave up effect, so it sounds like a 12 string. Um, I was uh, really into that for a long time. In fact, I got that idea years ago, funny you mentioned failure, because I went to go see Year of the Rabbit. An old friend of mine was playing bass in that band, so I'd seen them a bunch of times before failure got back together. And the guitar player had an octave up almost the entire time, and I really loved it. Um, hmm. And Billy Howard from Perfect Circle does that a lot. So I really got into that for a while. Tom Morello does that too. So is it so wrong? Like that one is just my Les Paul through a little Pro Junior, I think, maybe an AC30 and, you know, not too many effects really. Just that octave up effect. Right. Sometimes there's a chorus. It's funny you mentioned You're the Rab. We just had Tim Dow on like oh, yeah. last month. I love Tim. He played on, on the Power of Sound. He played on a couple of tunes. He's an incredible drummer. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's doing anything yeah. now, but... Uh, I know it's a shame. So we're getting close to the hour mark, and yeah. um, I would like I'd like to wrap up here. So I want to ask you some, like I guess we'll say, like rapid-fire questions. So yeah. give me one album from your youth that was a really big influence on you, besides Tin Machine. I think that was one we learned today was, was shocking. Tin Machine yeah. was... But maybe another record that people maybe wouldn't know as well. I mean, Tim Machine people know because of Bowie, but maybe something lesser yeah. known that was a big influence to you as a as a youngster, and then something new that you're listening to that's okay. really been blowing your mind. When I was younger, let's see, I really loved Hairway to Steven by the Butthole Surfers. I really loved all the replacements records, but especially Don't Tell a Soul. Huh. Well, I mean, Don't Tell a Soul, Please to Meet Me all of them really but like i really gravitated towards please to meet me don't tell a soul all shook down I, I still listen to all the time i mean I listen to all of them really like I, I love the replacements that's one of my all-time favorite bands the beatles obviously king crimson discipline those three adrian blue records were huge for me growing up especially discipline i love beat three of a perfect pair got so many records joe strummer's earthquake weather that's another one that people kind of poo poo that, that's his first solo record. I think it's an incredible record. I still listen to it. I love it so much. And that's how I met uh, Xander Schloss. He's an old, dear friend, uh, great guitar player. He played in in uh, Joe Strummer's solo band, that, that first solo band. Mm-hmm. And um, he's somebody I, I called on the phone a bunch and we became friends You know, when I was a kid. But anyway, so that, that's a great record. I mean, the list is endless, really. Lately, I'm not crazy about the, the latest record, but I really love... Um, the second to last St. Vincent record. I was just listening to that again today. I haven't heard that in a while. I love that record. Hmm. What else? Let me look at my phone. <laughs> That's a good, yeah. Check, check I don't your, know, recent, man. Uh, your, your recent streams on, uh, on Spotify yeah. or Apple Music. What do I got? What do I got? <laughs> I don't know. I've been listening to uh, Dionne Warwick, getting into the Talking Heads. I never really explored them that much. 
I really like The Verve. I kind of fell in love with a few of their songs recently. I never listened to them before. Interesting. Shit, I don't know. Gary Glitter. I went through a big Gary Glitter phase last couple months. I love Gary Glitter. The Slits. Fucking love The Slits. Funkadelic. Um, Susie Quattro. Joy Division. I really got into Closer, their second record. Many, many contemporary bands. I feel like there's got to be some contemporary bands that I like. I like Courtney Barnett. I like a lot of her songs. Uh, songs aren't, I mean, I, I like all sorts of music, but I really love songs, and, and songs aren't really big these days. You know what I mean? It's yeah. More tracks, and, and it's, it's a, just a different thing. It's not inferior or superior. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I listened a lot to uh, Dean Hurley, the guy that uh, is David Lynch's collaborator and, and recording engineer. He also mixed The Other Side of Midnight. He he released uh, a compilation of, of basically like tracks and sound effects from Twin Peaks, uh, the, the return that I, I listened to a lot. I like that record. Have um, you listened to the uh, the John Carpenter albums? A little bit. I like those. I, I love the, the Halloween soundtrack. Yeah, that yeah. and the and the Escape from New York soundtrack and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. was it uh, the there's a, there's a couple other ones, but yeah, his yeah. his solo stuff is pretty interesting because you can hear the basis of the uh, a lot of the movie stuff that he did. Sure, it's pretty cool. He's great. I love that stuff. Well, yeah. Jay, you got any other questions you want to uh, throw oh, out before Lanigan. we wrap up? Mark Lanigan, I, I love Mark Lanigan. He's 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 getting better and better. Gargoyle, I thought yeah. was an incredible record. And I heard a couple of new tracks from he's got a collaborative record, I forget with who. He's got a, a duo record coming out soon, and the songs were great. So he's somebody that people either like love him and worship him or they have no idea who he is. Yeah. But he was the singer in the Screaming Trees. He sang in Queens of the Stone Age for years. He's he's all over the map. Like he, you know, he's done stuff with PJ Harvey. Um he's so incredible. T- Talk about the bit he does on the record, right? He does a spoken word piece. Is that his piece yeah. and how did that come to be? Uh, I'm just a huge fan and we had a mutual friend and I asked him if he, if he could put me in touch with Mark and he did. Um, I, I emailed Lanigan to see if he would be interested and he responded within like an hour and said, yeah. So he just did it. Um, he does a spoken word intro, which is basically the first two verses of the song. So I, I wrote it and he just said it. I gave him like a little demo of like kind of the vibe I was looking for. And he sings on the bridge as well. Might be a little hard to hear. Well, no, I don't think it's hard to hear. Like you can hear him singing on the bridge. I'm singing underneath him, but it's a lot quieter. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was incredible. Like when I, when I first got the uh, MP3 back, whatever, when they sent me what he did, I just like I was laughing. Like I, I was just like so giddy. Like I couldn't believe Mark Landigan was on one of my songs and reciting my lyrics. You know what I mean? It blew my mind. He's just a hero. I think he's incredible. It's a cool it's moment a- on the record. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah, he's a heavy dude. And Kevin Haskins from Bauhaus and Love and Rockets, Tones on Tail, Pop Tone. He plays drums, p- plays a percussion on uh, one song, and he's a friend from LA. We've played together a bunch. And he's, you know, another hero. Like, we've become buddies, but I love Bauhaus. I love Love and Rockets. I love that music. So it's really cool to have him on it. So let's tell people where they should be going to uh, find all this music. One is they can go to the website, 
which is just johnnyplonsky.com. And then yep. they can also go to your uh, Bandcamp page where everything is available for digital. Uh, and you've got a nice, like, full digital discography package that uh, people yeah. can take advantage of. And, of course, you're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, which is how we ended up uh, yep. talking. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Glad we got My pleasure, man. Thank you, guys. So want to remind everyone out there who's listening, you can go to patreon.com for bonus content. You can go to iTunes to rate the podcast. And that's it for Jay and Tim. We're done. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. How could I go?